Super Talk Mississippi media production. Come see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601-835-4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes. In a Mississippi Minute. Welcome to In a Mississippi Minute. I'm pumped about my guest today as we have traveled down similar roads, growing up in this historically rich musical and cultural state of ours, doing long-served time in Nashville while writing hit songs, one leading her to a Grammy Award. Then came home to run the show at the Delta Music Institute at Delta State University, a school we both got our degrees from. And what now seems like a zillion years ago, I'm telling you, it, it feels like that. Please welcome the first lady of the DMI, Tricia Walker. Hey, Tricia. <laughs> hey, Steve. That's a great introduction, I, except my time here was way before your time here. It was barely before my time. I love how you, uh, <laughs> it's like my buddy, uh, I left town at 27 or 28, and my buddy still think, I'm still under uh, 40 and under, and I've been gone. I was gone for 20 years, home for seven, and they still want to classify me as the 40 and under group. I can't, I can't, I can't well, grow I'll, older. Well, I like that. Tell me your secret. Maybe that can get <laughs> my, to work for me. My secret is somebody like you going like uh, that. You're like 100 generations ahead of me, and you're not. You're just you're barely, barely in front of me. I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, sure. For people that that don't know, I've been the artist in residence since moving back home at the Delta Music Institute that sits on our fighting okra of Delta State University's campus. Uh, it was the gymnasium that Trisha and I both used to play basketball in and intramurals uh, and uh, converted into this world-class studios and learning center. And when I say learning center, a full curriculum. Oh, absolutely. Well, we offer a four-year degree, a bachelor of science degree in entertainment industry studies. And you and I both know that the entertainment industry is uh, multifaceted and complex. Right. So within that degree, you know, our students can either focus on audio engineering technology or what we call entertainment entrepreneurship, things like mm-hmm. management, promotion, booking, that sort of thing. Or now we've added a multimedia technology. So if students want to lean more toward the visual side of things, uh, they can lean in that direction. But it's all it all kind of cross-pollinates because that's how the business is. So I'm glad you that you clarified. I couldn't get the word degree out because it took me so long to get mine. I still, <laughs> I still have nightmares about skipping class or not taking a test to graduate. That's still sort of my uh, my nightmares that I that I that I still get. It's so funny. And I had one recently. Uh, so, so we're talking about full on board curriculum. It reminds us of Belmont and Nashville, right? 
mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. is the the closest thing that I can think of. So for people that don't know, Trisha and I went and went to college and did the regular thing. I was a really bad pre-med major for most of my time there and then realized, got a degree in, in business. And Trisha, what did you major in in college? I was a music education major and, you know, here at Delta State, and I, I loved my degree. I, I had the great fortune of having music lessons from the time I was a little kid all the way up. Um, but music education or music performance degree was what was available. You know, had had the entertainment industry degree been available back then, I'm sure I would have gone that way. Mm-hmm. But I'm very proud of my music education degree. I just knew that I, I didn't see myself as like an elementary school music teacher. I wanted to write music and compose music. And um, I had no idea how to make a living doing that at the time, but... Um, I'm glad that I became, you know, a schooled musician. It served me well, but that was my degree. I have a bachelor's in music education, and then I actually went to Mississippi College and and earned a graduate degree in music theory and composition. We're talking to Tricia Walker, Grammy-winning songwriter, uh, head of the Delta Music Institute, and I'm Steve Azar. You are inside of Mississippi Minute. We are are heading uh, uh, to the direction of the 60th, so we'll get there soon. But, Tricia, so... I guess my point is, if we would have had this curriculum when you and I were there, we talk about this a lot, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that 10 years in Nashville that it takes you to sort of get there, that that's sort mm-hmm. of the number that you and I sort of decided that was pretty much it. It was 10 years for me before I had my first hit. I feel like that the curriculum would have gotten us, you know, eight years ahead of schedule, seven years, six years ahead of schedule at where... We, you know, we weren't going down uncharted territories because we had a lot of this knowledge already that the school right. offers. Right, exactly. I, you know, I'd say at least a minimum of eight years, and it's, it's not that it was a bad thing, but when you're when you're out there in the school of hard knocks, whenever you learn that painful lesson, then it takes you a bit of time to back up and and do it again. Mm-hmm. And so those six, seven, eight years go by, and then finally the door begins to crack open. So what we try to do here is is assemble a, a faculty that have been in the business for a long time, and then artists like yourself who, who come to be a part of the program and try to save these students, you know, six or seven years of, of trying to figure it out themselves. We can we can put the roadmap out there in front of them. It's not going to look the same for every student, but we can lay that map out there, and it'll save them some time and some heartache. I love it, and, and I agree with that because I, 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 along with you, I know we had a lot of heartaches, and a lot of them were senseless, and some of them mm-hmm. led to great things, but there's... There's some potholes you need to go, you know, you need your car needs to, you know, run over, and there's some they don't. And, uh, right. and so as we go along, we learn that, and look, looking in the rearview mirror, we learn a lot. Tell me the challenges that you face as an educator versus the songwriter artist that you've always been. You know, I, I mean, I think that that's, that's something that always amazes me about you, that you could put on both these hats. Well, you know, the biggest challenge I think that I face and probably all of our faculty here face uh, in the DMI in a program that's so perceived to be so sexy and glamorous, you know, we're the entertainment industry program, it's always a hard balance to get students to come in and remember that first and foremost, they've got to be a good scholar. Um, You know, we're, we're fortunate to have uh, three bands in our program, and so a lot of our students just live to go to band class and play guitar all day, and that's great. That's mm-hmm. certainly a part of it. Um, but then they forget why they have to do that history paper for the eight o'clock class the next morning. So trying to help maintain that balance of, and I think this is something that that I never have gotten over, and probably you haven't either, is 
you know, how to figure out how to balance that that passion for that thing you love so much that you want to do, but then to begin to treat it like a business, which means you have to put mm-hmm. on that left side of your brain and have to get kind of hard-nosed about it. How do you keep that passion for something that you love so much and, and yet you want to try to make a living from? Now, some of our students, you know, they get to a point where they go, you know what? I don't know if I want to do this for a living. I may just do this as a hobby, and that's great. That's a choice that somewhere along the road they're going to have to make. But for those of us like you and me where it's just it's all we've ever wanted to do and lived and breathed it, then you've got to figure out how to make those sacrifices and how to learn the business and how to not be afraid to go out there and fail and learn from those mistakes. So, you know, education is really more about the whole student, you know, educating a young person to become an adult and learn how to take failure with success and hang on to that passion and uh, find that work ethic. You know, again, you and I are in a business that's built on illusion. It's what you right. think you see on TV. And, and the truth of it is, it is a hard, hard grind. And it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. Right. And so that's one of the main challenges, I think, with our students is helping them helping them keep that passion but develop that very necessary work ethic because it's a it's a tough business out there. Okay, so speaking of, so tell me how you personally, because this is the, the, to me, the $10 million question, you're able uh-huh. to remain the artist that I know and that I knew. So uh-huh. how are you able to do that? Uh, you and I both have our hands in a lot of different things, but they're all entertainment-based. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. We, we both have that. Uh, obstacle in front of us and 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 finding balance i i know how i balance myself but you've got a new record coming out which i want to talk about in the next segment as well yep. but how do you balance yourself you know we used to be all in i mean 100 percent that we we wrote every day we went and got captain crunch in the morning i don't know about your cereal of choice but mine was captain crunch <laughs> at, you know and and you'd get up and you'd write all day you know you have your writing appointments scheduled you write like you're going to a nine to five job and mm-hmm. that was it. We don't have mm-hmm. that. It's funny. We probably could have that luxury, but we don't. And you definitely don't with with the strains of running an entire program of this capacity. Mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. still remain an artist? Well, I've had to certainly uh, revise my schedule. And I'll, you know, I know we're going to talk about the record a little bit later, but I have had the last, the last full record I made was about six or seven years ago. But even after I finished that, I had about a half a dozen songs that I knew they were going to be on the next record, but just didn't have the time. So I had to just physically get out the calendar about a year ago during spring break and block everything off my calendar and just commit to finishing those songs. One of the ways that I have to do now in terms of writing is is coordinate that with an academic calendar. So spring break, summer, Christmas break, whenever you got those big blocks of time, I try to carve carve that out for writing and for playing. And I'm fortunate, you know, my schedule does allow me to, to jump out there every now and then on the weekends and go do gigs uh, or do in-state things. They look a little different than they used to, where they might be, uh, last week I did something at Millsaps for an arts and lecture series and, you know, do the same songs that I used to do at the Bluebird, but it was just for a different audience. So it's, the audiences have changed a little bit, but I still have an opportunity to go play, and I'm very grateful for that. No, I know. We are talking to Grammy Award-winning songwriter, recording artist, Trisha Walker, and I'm Steve Azar. You are in a Mississippi Minute. We'll be right back. Feeling down? 
Here's your prescription for a daily dose of good news and positive vibes. Good Things with Rebecca Turner. Every afternoon, Rebecca highlights all the good things happening right here in the state you call home. Daily exposure to good things with Rebecca Turner may cause smiling, feelings of positivity, happiness, and even laughter. When you experience these symptoms, tell your friends to listen. Okay. Weekdays starting at 2 p.m. here on Super Talk Mississippi and now on Amazon Alexa devices. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Oh, Lord. I'm striving. Hey, everybody. I'm Steve Azar. We are back in a Mississippi Minute. My guest is Trisha Walker, a hit songwriter, Grammy-winning songwriter. And I want to go back now and talk about growing up. Trisha, because I always feel like, uh, you know, the, the growing up years are so important that help mold you uh, into the fighter uh, that you needed to become. Uh, mm-hmm. str- the str- dealing with struggles, uh, losing a lot and winning uh, and then understanding what winning uh, would be like eventually. So mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. say that our road is full of a lot more losses and victories and the victories are so sweet. But you're always you know, you move on to the next one because you know that, <laughs> you know, it's like hard to celebrate because you you got beat up so much that <laughs> that you just got you're looking to, to tomorrow. You go, that was great. That was a heck of a victory. Now I got I got to make sure I can have another one. Okay, right. so growing up, obviously music had to be around you. When did you mm-hmm. know you wanted to do it? Well, like I said earlier, I had the great fortune of having a lovely lady begin to teach me piano lessons when I was six years old. Her name was Miss Iska Montgomery. And fortunately, she lived to be in her 90s and got to see part of my national success. So that was very sweet for me. Wow. So I learned piano. But when I was, whatever grade I was in, one night, Sunday night, uh, when the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan. And I saw them, and I went, oh, my gosh, I want to do that. That looks like fun. Hmm. And my parents bought me a K guitar from the local Western Auto Store. Hmm. Um, and so I learned my fingers bled because the strings were like, you know, half an inch above the fretboard. And my fingers would just bleed while I learned how to play those three chords out of the Mel Bay guitar book. <laughs> And I loved it, though. I loved it. You know, that was during the time before radio got so segmented. So the greater part of my music education was listening to AM radio in the 60s and, and, uh, and then FM radio in the 70s. But, you know, back then it was everything. It was the Monkees next to Jimi Hendrix, next to Aretha Franklin, next to Bobby Gentry. It was everything. So that was my music education. But I started a band down the down the road. There were a pair of brothers whose father ran a chicken processing plant. I lived in out the country, mm-hmm. and we started a band. They had a cousin in Greenwood, Mississippi, and we formed a band. And we were called the Mishap. Anything to do with chicken that just excites me. That's like my <laughs> that's my food of choice on the road. So uh, keep going. <laughs> yeah, so we formed the mishaps, and we learned, you know, cover tunes, and we would play, you know, the American Legion hut on Saturday nights and charge for dances. And, and again, remember, this was way before the age of yeah. Internet and, and 50 other forms of entertainment. So so I learned early, you know, as you did, how to how to have a band and how to play songs that people liked. And, and then somewhere along the way, probably my, probably even my, Senior year high school, first year of college, I began to write what looked like a song. Nobody taught you how to write songs. Right. <laughs> they kind of looked like songs, and they sort of sounded like songs. And, and uh, I turned to a little bit more of acoustic music. My two best friends and I used to sing together as a trio in church and 
and for various things. So my in that age of the the golden age of singer songwriter Carol King, James Taylor, they were just became my heroes in the early seventies, and I really locked into that. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Okay, so you make you you, you go to Delta State, right? Your mm-hmm. your music education major, and then you go to Mississippi College. You take two years to go through Mississippi College before you had your uh, masters. I did, mm-hmm. and I, and while I was doing that, I was actually playing in some some bars and restaurants around Jackson. If any of your listeners around Jackson remember George Street Grocery, oh yeah, when there was a little um, there was a little perch, you had to climb up a ladder to mm. get to this little perch in the downstairs part of the restaurant. I would climb up there and sing for three or four hours to the people down in the bar. What was the liability was, of that? Was you have your guitar no. strapped to your back and just climbing up a ladder? Man, well, I was I was young and nimble back then. <laughs> we were. <laughs> now I've known some people that used to play there that went had to climb that thing that went up there in a lot better shape than they came down. <laughs> if you know what I mean. So I know what you mean. Oh. I remember that place. All right, yeah. so we're talking to Tricia Walker, Grammy award-winning songwriter. Uh, it's hard to win a Grammy. Uh, it's a gift to win a Grammy, but it takes a lot of crazy talent. And it all has to, all the stars have to align. And that's something that you get to claim and that st- stays on your shelf uh, and uh, is the ultimate trophy, you know, for what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, wanna, I want you to go now to Nashville. So you leave Mississippi College. Uh, give me the time frame that you said, okay, was it, was it right after you're going like, you know what, I, I think I want to go to Nashville. I mean, was it right after Mississippi College? You know, it was probably I was thinking about it. I can tell you the exact date, and I can tell you why, and I usually share this with students. I remember, you know, I was playing around town. I had finished my my master's degree. I was writing what looked like songs, and and the only resource out there at the time, there was a magazine published out of Los Angeles called Songwriter Magazine, and I subscribed to it, and I think I still have a box of it in my closet, but it it was the only resource I had that would give you information about how to pitch your songs in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And they, they would have articles about, back then it was cassettes, so you had to you had to type your lyrics out and how to wrap your lyrics around the cassette tape. I remember. How to, how to call people and make an appointment. And, and every, every uh, month they would have in their magazine a person from New York, a person from Los Angeles, and a person from Nashville that were in the publishing business. And so they gave their phone number and their name and everything else. So that's where I would get my information. And I made a few appointments. Uh, you know, I've always been kind of a, a, a jeans and T-shirts kind of gal, but I borrowed some decent-looking clothes from a friend of mine <laughs> and made an appointment to go meet with a couple of publishers in Nashville because that's what the magazine said you were supposed to do. So I went and I met with Ronnie Gant yeah. at Acuff Publishing. And I'll never forget because... He was he was very kind. He was he was straight up, but he was very kind, and he played my songs. And then he looked and he said, "Well, you know that's pretty good, but if you're going to move to this town, you've got to write something as good or better than this." And he right. took the number one song at the time, which was a hit by Barbara Mandrell called "Years After You," written by my now friend Tom Schuyler, <laughs> and he put that on. He said, "You got to beat that." And I went, oh, I yeah. see. Yeah, I had one of those and, epiphanies as well. <laughs> yeah, but he was not unkind. He was he was just very truthful. He said, here's what you're going to be competing against. And I'm like, okay, I got it. So I went back home, and I, I tell my students and, and any young people that will listen, the fear of going 
you know, packing up the truck and going and the fear of failing was not nearly as strong as the fear of staying and not ever going to try. I love that. I love that. That says it all. That's what got me in the truck on August the 15th, 1980. It was hot. Golly, it was hot. Didn't know a single person in Nashville, but I had made arrangements to sublet an apartment down on Belmont Boulevard and drove in with the U-Haul. My mom was driving my car and a friend was driving another car. And didn't get there in time to turn the lights on. So I remember we had pizza by candlelight sitting on a bunch of boxes in my apartment the first night in Nashville. And it was great. It was exciting. It was like, oh, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. Nothing could have driven. I mean, nothing could have kept me from going. I was I waited when I was a teenager. I wanted it. I went to uh, mostly New York and L.A. Mine was with Ahmed Erdogan, a great record uh, mogul who uh, who signed uh-huh. so many great acts, and he he my version was of your story is getting played walking in Memphis, and so uh-huh. by Mark Cohen. So you know, and I didn't have it, I knew it, but but I said I want that. I still wanted yeah. it. It didn't scare me away. It just made me work harder. And uh-huh. there's nothing that I wouldn't have done. Nothing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, just to be able to move like you did, I was all in. I mean, I'd sit in record label offices until they almost arrested me and my brother. And I mean, mm-hmm. we were truly yeah. nuts looking yeah. back. And and I, you know, I I try to explain that to our kids, but they look at me like you know whatever. But I I hope that they have that desire to chase their passion and at any cost fight for it. Yeah. You know, absolutely. You got to have it. You've got to have it. You can't just go into it half heartedly. It won't work. Right, there's no way. Okay, so you get there, and and I love Tom Schuyler. I mean, you you immediately, so immediately you're you're, get, you're hearing this song by this writer you don't know. You move to town with nobody you know, and how does Tom Schuyler end up in your life? Well, that was a couple. That was a few years later. You know, when I moved to Nashville, I didn't have a job. But I, when I left Jackson, one of my part-time jobs besides singing around town. I had worked as the Mississippi State School for the Blind and the Deaf, just as a recreation person. And when I got to Nashville, in a couple of weeks after I got there, there was an opening at the Tennessee School for the Blind and Deaf and as an afternoon recreation director. So from 2, two in the afternoon to 10 at night, that was my half-a-day gig. And so then I would get up in the mornings and you know try to figure out Nashville and how it worked. And, you know, the Bluebird wasn't even open when I moved to Nashville. It didn't open until 82, and they didn't start the In the Round series until about 87. So I only knew Tom just through his hits he had had. He had already had um, 16th Avenue by Lacey J. Dalton, um, and I'm thinking, man, I love this. So it wasn't until a few years in where I met Tom and began to kind of be part of that bluebird circle. But he's um, what a tremendous writer, and he was always a tremendous friend. Before we go, Tricia, so I know you worked with one of these artists, and you could have worked with both of them, but you get to play DJ. You know, Mississippi being the birthplace of American music, I always let uh-huh. my guests play DJ, and this should be easy uh-huh. for you, except I'm going to give you a tough choice. Uh, lead us into the break with R.L. Burnside or somebody you spent a lot of time on the road with, Paul Overstreet. Oh man, well I love RL, but I you know I gotta go with Paul. I gotta go with Paul. Because you know the you know the chords. <laughs> you know I all do know the, the songs. chords and all the background vocals. <laughs> no. We'll be right back here in a Mississippi minute. I'm Steve Azar. We're with Trisha Walker. My father and me, and I'm happy to see my father and me. 
easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Honeysuckle and a huckleberry fin. Magnolia blossom, can't you smell them in the wind? Ain't no place that I've ever been. Feels like Mississippi. Hey everybody, I'm Steve Azar. I'm back. You're back. Trisha Walker is back. Uh, we are inside Ooh. of Mississippi Minute. I got her celebrating on the other side of the landline. Uh, Trisha, we're going to talk about, you brought up the Bluebird, and uh, so many people obviously have been to Nashville and been to the Bluebird or tried to get in. Uh, let's take people back. So you were in the beginning stage of this, of this place. Uh, it's it's a place as a songwriter. The later you get to play at night, the more hits you've had. And sort of your goal as a songwriter, for me, when I got there, was to be at the at the, the final set. So uh, take me back, because you were in the beginning of all this. You had the girls in the round. And uh, just g- when did you get to start playing there? Uh, who were you playing with? Uh, and how did you get with? The group that you spend some—I don't want to give it all away. I want you to take me through sure. your Bluebird years. Sure, sure, sure. Happy to do that. Well, like I said, the Bluebird um, opened as a restaurant in 1982, and music was an afterthought by the owner and proprietor Amy Curlin, who was the owner for so many years. Um, and she tried music, I think, some, but but somewhere around '87, um, it, it, you know, the Bluebird became kind of a favorite watering hole of some of the songwriters, and so. Some of the really active songwriters at the time, Don Schlitz, Fred Noblock from Jackson, Mississippi, right. uh, Paul Overstreet from Mississippi, and uh, Tom Schuyler, and then occasionally Craig Bickhart. Uh, some of that configuration one day was sitting at the bar, and um, a show broke out. <laughs> and <laughs> instead of having songwriters at the bar, they began to migrate uh, toward the stage, which was on the other side of the bar, and I don't think they ever got there. So they ended up in the middle of the room, <laughs> sitting, sitting in a circle, playing their songs. And so that was the, the origin of this whole in-the-round concept. And the Bluebird, for those who hadn't been there, is a very small room, seats about 94 people. Um, anything beyond that, the fire marshal starts to get a little nervous. Uh, but the songwriters would sit in the middle of the room and play their songs. Some had been hit songs and some had not, but there's something really magical and wonderful about songwriters playing their own material. So these four guys started doing that, and it began to be really the coolest thing in town. And so I thought, well, let's let's see if we can find four women who could who had that same kind of chemistry. They had a great chemistry, those guys. So I knew Karen Staley, who was in town. She was developing as a songwriter, mm-hmm. and then Pam Tillis and Ashley Cleveland had both known each other at the University of Tennessee. And so we connected the four of us. We rehearsed one time, and we had our first show in February of 1988. I still have it on a cassette tape somewhere. Uh, And we had our first Women in the Round, the original Women in the Round. And for all the rounds and songwriter shows that I've ever done, we just had this natural, and still have, this natural chemistry 
that is just hilarious. So not only is the music good, but the craziness in between is so entertaining. So right. we, we got to where we would play the Bluebird. You know, back then you could play more than once a week or once a month. So sometimes there, we were there twice a week and, and just packed it. It was just so much fun. I, I love this. The difference between men and women, even songwriters. The guys couldn't make it all the way to the stage. And just <laughs> just let a free for all, and you girls rehearsed one time, but you still rehearsed. That's the difference okay. in pre, uh, non preparation versus preparation, <laughs> and so <laughs> thus thus men and women from two different planets. I love it. We're yeah, talking to Trisha Walker, Grammy award winning songwriter. Okay, so at this time, had you had hits? You're in the Bluebird. You're playing. Are you just playing your songs? Because I know people get got songs recorded there. Uh, by artists or producers that may have seen it. Is that how it happened for you, um, or what was the process there? You know, it was, it was always a great place to try out songs. When we started in the round, um, I had just been writing for Polygram Music for a year. I was writing for Jerry Kennedy, the, the legendary Jerry mm-hmm. Kennedy. And so I had had some songs on some albums. Uh, but had not had the Allison Krauss cut yet. But I'd had some songs on albums by Mo Bandy. Uh, Patty Loveless had cut a song. Um, uh, Mel McDaniels had cut a song. So it was right. It was right in that time when I was writing for Polygram that we started doing the Bluebird thing. So there's no doubt that having that exposure to some audiences. And back then, you got to remember that people who came to the Bluebird were really more hometown Nashville people and music biz people. It wasn't all tourists like it is now. Yeah, you can't so get people in. People really did come right. to hear what the songwriters were singing. So it was different back then. Okay, and it gave you a sounding board, so you could see when you know I'm I'm a believer in this, and and people go, oh, songs are live songs versus songs that need to be recorded. I mm-hmm. believe that there is that feeling you get when you play a song and it impacts. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, my song "Sunshine." This is what told me we had something, and this is the yeah. most odd thing. I had a radio programmer, and we were in Florida playing a show. And I had a radio programmer that was in the middle of battling with his wife, and they were going through what was going to be a divorce, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They were probably, he said he was about 100 yards away from the stage and mm-hmm. couldn't see the stage, and he heard me playing Sunshine. He mm-hmm. stops the argument to go, wait, what is that? Because I guess he knew my music, but that it drew him in. And yeah. so he comes up to me at the end of the night. He goes, you literally just stopped an argument with my wife of this song. What was the song you played? Same thing happened with my father-in-law, who also predicted I don't have to be me on Monday. Because he, he said, that I remember being that way and not being mm-hmm. who, you know, being wanting to be James Dean in my car over the week. You know, it sort of helped mold the, third, the, the last verse. But he also mm-hmm. said he heard it when we were playing a show and goes, Wait a minute, what is that? I mean, so I believe that when you get a chance to have a real crowd as a sounding board, there is that uh, like, oh, you got one. And and there's a difference between energy and, oh, it's a great live, like uh, everybody's in the spirit, and a song that really has to grab somebody. I mean, do you feel the same way? Oh, no doubt, no doubt. You know, a great song, you can sit here and sing it with nothing, and a great song will always stand up and be a great song. Or you can take a mediocre song and try to cover it up with a million dollars worth of production, and it's still going to be a mediocre song. So the great thing about venues like the Bluebird is that it's just the song is the star. The song is there, mm-hmm. and the song is either going to work or it's not. And, and you can tell pretty quickly whether you get that sort of 
half-hearted applause or if people are weeping or laughing uncontrollably, and you can tell. Right. I've either got something or I've got to take it back and work on it some more. Right, you hear it in the raw. So, which yeah. brings me up to this. So, see, when I, when you play one of the songs that you've written, I think mm-hmm. even though Alison Krauss is incredible and Patty Loveless and the list goes on, I get it. But I love, I still love it when you play that song. I love okay. it when... Uh, Anthony Smith, my buddy who's written a bunch of songs in Nashville, and everybody's recorded them. The Craig Wisemans, the Mark Allen Springers, the Roger Murrays, and the Neil Cody's and the James Houses, although James had a successful artist career as well. Uh, mm-hmm. It blows my mind. That's why I love the Bluebird. People probably leave and go, that's better than the original because there's been no grapevine. Mm-hmm. I, obviously, you came there to write songs and you were jumping up and down, but... Mm-hmm. There's something that's so magical about that raw song that came out of that wonderful heart and soul and that was fearless to to be honest and lay mm-hmm. it all out on the line. And when you have no grapevine and you have mm-hmm. no layers of of uh somebody else recording it, it came right out of right out of the oven and into your mouth. You know what I mean? It's like right, it didn't right, go in the freezer, right. it didn't go, you know, and then get rethought out and all that and you know. So uh, there is a magic in that. And uh-huh. and I wish people in our audiences could really could really understand the feeling that you and I have uh, of being around some of the greatest songwriters, artists with great wild personalities that are mm-hmm. funny. You talk about mm-hmm. the blue, you girls are having such fun where you, first of all, you're a family and you miss each other. You became mm-hmm. a family through tough times and, and had success together. That 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 is your family. But, mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter that you get to, I don't know, man, that, that there's a magic in understanding the art that's around you and the privilege you have of friends that are so talented. It is, and I'll tell you, it's been a real fun thing here over the last couple of years. I've I've called in a few favors from some of those friends in Nashville, the women in the round, and a couple of other songwriters, and we've actually put on a couple of Bluebird-style in-the-round shows here in Cleveland. And, And it is, it's hard to explain to an audience until they come to one, and then they get it. They go, that what that was better than the... You know, the full production show I saw last night, that was incredible. And I think a lot of it has to do, some of it has to do with being in the round. And it's a very uh, voyeuristic kind of experience. I mean, you're you're elbow to elbow with the songwriters in the round, and you are right there. And there's that exchange of energy and emotion that that is different than when a performer is on stage and the audience is a, a ways away. Right. So there's there's no separation. Right. There's no separation and there's an intimacy that you just can't you can't get anywhere else. And and that is the magic of we are talking to the great Trisha Walker. She is uh, taking up some of her day and has to get back to being an educator and then a songwriter and then an artist. We're going to talk about your next record. But uh, in the next break, I want to dive into when you wrote uh, the the big hit for Allison Krauss and Union Station and then sort of, you know, uh, you know, looking in the eyes of love, right? That was the title. Mm-hmm. And I want to, yep. I want to know where you were, how, what you ate that morning, what was the magic potion, and we'll be right back. We're talking to the great Trisha Walker. I'm Steve Azar. You're in a Mississippi. Keep walking 
your news when you want it. The News Mississippi app, available for iOS and Android devices. Just search for News Mississippi. That's News Mississippi. That's News Mississippi. Your source for everything happening in your state. News Mississippi. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Steve Azar. You are in the very backside of a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, because that's how we do roll in Mississippi. I'm with the great Trisha Walker. Uh, we're going to dive into Grammy. I want to know what you ate that morning. Like I said, I want to know what side of the bed you got up on. Uh, you know, what was the what was the journey into writing this Grammy winning song? Wow. Now, I don't remember what I had for breakfast. Oh. <laughs> I can tell you, though, I was... That was during a time period when I was writing for Jerry Kennedy at Polygram Music. And because that was a large company, they typically would connect us with other writers in the company. And so another writer that was writing there at the time was a Greek fellow named Costas, who had yeah. already had some pretty big hits um, from Patty Loveless and other folks. Had that falsetto was, voice. Yeah, yeah, and then and again he's got a he's got a very long Greek last name. I don't think I can even pronounce it, but everybody just called him Costas. Right. And so they had um, they had connected us with a songwriting appointment. Like you said, it was one of those. I think we had a morning appointment, and so we showed up with our notebooks. It was the first time I had written with him, and so it takes a little of that you know kind of dancing back and forth to get used to whoever else is in the room. And I remember. I remember just pulling an idea out of my notebook again from a from a teachable moment. I, we're trying to teach our songwriting students to to keep a notebook, keep what they call a hook book, and write down those hooks when you think of them. And and I remember going to my notebook, and he went to his notebook, and we just began to kind of put it together. Um, he did a a little rough work tape, which I still have a copy of, and I did a little rough work tape, which I think I still have a copy of. Hmm. And then we put it out there, and, and Patty Loveless cut it first. It was never a single. Um, I think it was scheduled to be a single, but they never got that far in the album. And then one near one Christmas, I got a phone call from Allison Krause's manager, and she said, hey, Trisha, um, I need you to send over the lyrics to Looking in the Eyes of Love. And I said, great. I said, what's going on? And she said, has anybody called you? And I said, no, what's up? She said, well, Allison's going to cut Looking in the Eyes of Love. And I went, oh, my gosh, Merry Christmas to me. Yeah. And, uh, and I got so chills right now. That, Just for FYI, yeah. I got chills. <laughs> and and that's how that went down. And, um, oh, my gosh, what a consummate artist. You know, there's so much wonderful space in that song. She left so much space. You know, again, she didn't cover it up with a lot of production. And it's amazing. If you go Google it on YouTube, you know, people are using it for a wedding song now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's crazy how songs have a life of their own. That change, it was a game changer, right, for you? I mean, it's uh, opened the doors to probably bigger publishing deals and and whatnot. I got, I got to redo my kitchen. 
There you go. You got to redo your kitchen. I love I it. Well, kitchen. We're quick to spend money when we make it. That's the only problem that uh, that that I do remember. <laughs> well, trust me, my, my kitchen really needed it, so it, it was a helpful thing. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, we're talking to Trisha Walker. I'm Steve Azar. You're in the Mississippi Minute. Laurie, let's jump into uh, your new record. You mm-hmm. got one about the great Boo Ferris that I love. Well, Boo Ferris. I mean, what else can I say? You know, Boo. I, I had. I was fortunate to be able to know him. Uh, yeah. He was a supporter of DMI. Uh, one one of his players from back in the seventies is a dear friend of mine that has done all my graphic design work and was one of Boo's real special boys, Brian Rogers. And he was just he was just so sweet. And and when he passed, you know, I wanted to try to write something. I. You know, the idea popped up in my head, Diamond in the Rough, and somebody, when I mentioned that to somebody, they said, oh, no, he was he was cultured, and, and I said, no, 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 it's not, that's not the meaning. The rough is the delta. You know, he came back to be that diamond in a rough place. Right. And affected so many lives over so many years, and he is Mr. Delta State Baseball, but, but more than that, just one of the kindest gentlemen, and so... The song turned out, you know, it's kind of a biographical song, and I was pleased to share it with the Delta State Baseball Reunion last fall and gave them all a copy, and I'm very proud of that song. It's a good one. If you didn't know Boo Ferris, you did after the song, and obviously I knew him too as well. A lot of my roommates played baseball there, and he Mm -hmm. was the guy that remembered your name and something important about you that your mom and dad didn't even remember. (laughs) <laughs> and that it oh, was yeah. his mind was amazing how he would remember that and ask you he was always asking it wasn't hey how you doing and and he doesn't hear you he heard everything everything oh yeah yeah amazing yeah. man he he would handwrite christmas cards to all of his former baseball players every year yeah i mean that's that's that says it all trisha i can't thank you enough everybody we've been in the uh a glorious 60 minutes of all of in a mississippi minute with my dear friend trisha walker check her out online her music uh i get to see her once a month and i'm blessed to do it i am steve azar rock on everybody i'm steve azar in a mississippi minute all 60 of them where you can take your sweet time feeling down Here's your prescription for a daily dose of good news and positive vibes. Good Things with Rebecca Turner. Every afternoon, Rebecca highlights all the good things happening right here in the state you call home. Daily exposure to good things with Rebecca Turner may cause smiling, feelings of positivity, happiness, and even laughter. When you experience these symptoms, tell your friends to listen. Okay. Weekdays starting at 2 p.m. here on Super Talk Mississippi and now on Amazon Alexa devices. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.